So we knew this would be a small little gathering. This is a bit smaller than I even thought for a small gathering, but it is school holidays and a number of us are away. Um, but look, I've been talking about radical hospitality and, uh, and so look, I just wanted to talk very practically to finish off, I suppose, this series, which we've done lots of theology. We've talked a lot about the heart and the theology and the, I suppose, motivation of Christian hospitality but I wanted to have a bit of a practical discussion. So I'm just gonna share one or two stories and then let's have a conversation. Does that sound okay? Uh, and look, I won't record the conversation. I just thought I'd record a few stories to finish it off. Um, so look, I thought I'd start with Romans 12, nine to 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And look, I, I read this passage from Romans and the, the line that st stuck out to me was obviously practice hospitality. And I think what stood out to me was the idea that hospitality is one of those one of those things that I don't think many of us think about it from a practice perspective. You know, we, we know we practice music, uh, we practice learning a language, we practice, you know, maybe reading the scriptures, but in terms of practicing hospitality, I haven't really thought of it in that way as a skill that you need to gain self-mastery over through habits and through learning. And so I, when I reflected on that, I, I went back in time and reflected on my own story and I think it's, that, it's actually really true. So look, I'm not amazing at hospitality now, but I used to be pretty terrible at it. Uh, I think personality-wise, I'm an introvert, so that's not necessarily as good for kind of welcoming lots of people. Uh, I'm also very task-oriented rather than really relational by nature. So again, maybe not so good. And just from a family background, we just weren't hospitable in the way that I understand hospita hospitality now. And so it's definitely a skill I needed to learn. So these, I just want to tell two, share two stories and maybe get you to discuss them. The first story was when I was 18 years old, uh, about five years ago. No, I was 18 years old. And I, I remember the first time I ever, I know, I, I remember the first time I ever had people over for dinner for a dinner party, my own dinner party. So I was uh, in first year uni studying physio and I'd met a whole bunch of new people and I thought, wouldn't it be great if I had them around for a Chinese banquet? And you know, Chinese is my heritage. And so we used to eat around a round table with chopsticks and we'd share soups and meals. And so this is what I was used to anyway. And so I shared this idea uh, about inviting a bunch of my friends to my house. I was staying with my mum and dad, obviously at the time and, and having them over for this banquet. And we organized a date, a Saturday night, and it was very exciting. Everyone was excited about this. Um, it was going to be like, I suppose the, the aim is to have a typical Chinese banquet. So there's kind of a few different, you know, meals. Uh, so I had seven dishes all up. The first one was going to be a Wonga bark soup with fish balls. And that would, that's kind of like a starter, which was really nice. Uh, the second thing was um, then some fried rice with, you know, lop chong and ginger and different stuff like that. Some um, chicken and cashews, which is a meal we ate all the time. Uh, some shredded pork and then also a fish. I really love the steamed fish like a barramundi. And then you chop up lots of ginger and uh, spring onions. Then you tip hot oil over the top. You know, it was really beautiful with a bit of brown bean sauce on top. Uh, and then obviously you finish with some noodles and, 
And, uh, and, and then, and we never ate this, but I found a recipe for deep fried ice cream, which I thought was really cool. So, you know, we'll finish with deep ice cream. So everyone was excited, have some wine and all that type of stuff. And uh, so the only problem was that uh, about, I don't know, four days, three days, four days before the event, I realized that I'd never cooked a meal before. And, uh, and I'd eaten all these meals, but there was a bit of a difference between knowing how to cook them and knowing how to eat them. And so I went to my mum, good old mum, when I'm 18 years old, and said, Mum, I'm having like um, 12 people around for a Chinese banquet on Saturday night. Uh, how do you cook? <laughs> no, she, she was very gracious, but not necessarily the best way to start a banquet. So being a good mum, she didn't rescue me. She did help me with the recipes, which was a good start. Uh, and then she kicked my butt and said, now it's your responsibility to make it happen. So I went to the central markets and I, anyway, I spent the next three days in a complete flurry, just trying to work out, oh my goodness, it is actually a bit harder to cook a banquet for 12 people than I had expected uh, as a child. Um, so anyway, the people came Saturday night. I'd spent you know a few days preparing. I thought I was set, and uh, but look, the actual day itself was just chaos. And people came in. I welcomed them. I was friendly, but I was obviously totally stressed. <laughs> and um, the, the the soup was fine because that was pre-prepared. But as soon as I went to the mains, I'm like, oh, the fish steamer doesn't actually fit on the on the thing if you're cooking with a wok. And I'd missed a few ingredients. And then I got so stressed, I was stirring the fried rice and I tipped it and all the rice went all over the floor. And I'm like, picking up rice and putting it back into the wok. And there's oil going and my pork is burning. It was was a complete and utter disaster. And I was obviously stressed. And it was one of those really awkward things because my friends are in the other room and I'm obviously cussing and swearing and freaking out. And they're kind of like awkward because like, should they be helping me? But I didn't need any help. Should they be having fun when the chef is kind of totally (laughs) combusting? And I have this great friend, Naomi, still a great friend. And she came and she said, you know, Dan, it doesn't really matter if the food's any good. Like we're just here for just the fun, you know, but I just, I had this vision of what my banquet should be and, and it never quite worked out. And look, everyone went and I remember sitting uh, at about 12.30 at night watching you know, some stupid show like David Letterman, food everywhere, I was totally exhausted. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking that was a complete disaster. And I suppose you know, in that self-reflective mode, I did reflect on my own motivation. I thought, you know, there was actually a lot of selfishness. I was driven a lot by wanting to provide something great, by this vision of this great banquet, but it actually wasn't really a spirit of hospitality because it wasn't actually about welcoming and loving and being generous to people. I hardly even talked to any of my friends because <laughs> I was a Martha so busy serving them this food that was on the floor. Uh, so that was one experience. Um, Tim Chester uh, writes this, that meals can be a visual representation of our hearts. If our hearts are concerned for position, honor, status, or approval, then that will be reflected in our dining etiquette. So that's my first story. The second story is shorter. 20 years later, we were staying in a small flat in, uh, in Waterworks Road with uh, two friends. And it was this tiny little unit. It wasn't very good for hospitality. So it was, it was this kind of the unit itself. We had two bedrooms at the top, one at the bottom where Kylie and I uh, stayed. And this is before we had Naomi, our first child. And then... Um, 
and it was just this, it was a really bad setup for hospitality. So there was this tiny, tiny kitchenette and it had an electric stove and one of those ones that you get in caravans where, you know, they're either too hot, so they burn everything or you just can't heat anything up. They're terrible for Chinese cooking, obviously, because you'd need a wok to actually get some heat. Uh, so we ended up having one of those um, barbecue um, gas bottles and we, we put it on the floor and used to cook our own stuff, which I'm sure didn't follow any WHS principles. But, uh, and then there was the kitchen, the, the lounge room and the dining room were just one tiny thing. Uh, we couldn't even fit a table because it was too small. So we had just a little coffee table and a couch. And so we, ended, we had, again, about 15, you know, 18 people from the physio department around. And we just thought, ah. Oh, what are you meant to do? How many? Maximum well, 15. Oh, maximum 15. There you are. We always need my wife to keep my stories. <laughs> That's right. So, okay, okay. Okay, so, that, so there were 35 people. <laughs> and uh, so they popped, popped around and we just did a simple Chinese meal. We did, again, some soups and vegetables, uh, a bit of meat and some stir fry. But we put a blanket on the floor and we moved the coffee table over, we had some wine, and we just ate and we talked and we laughed. And it was actually just, I remember it because it was just one of those really amazing, meaningful, almost spiritual moments where you're eating with people, you're laughing, you know, someone spilt wine, and we're like, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not our carpet anyway. <laughs> so, you know, you quickly wipe it up and put some salt down, and then we just, we just kept talking, and we had really meaningful conversations. You know, we talked about the footy, physio, we talked about God, we talked about life. And, and it was just one of those, I don't know, one of those moments where it felt like God's presence was there, like heaven had come to earth, a bit like I talked about the other day. Uh, so they're my two experiences. Um, and so the question I thought I'd ask you just to warm us up is what might we learn from these stories about the heart or the practice of hospitality? Um, so maybe have a, a quick chat at your table. I'd like to hear from you. Um, so, look, in terms of the skill of um, hospitality, I was just thinking it'd be good to finish with talking about some really practical skills. And look, I mean, I know all of us here and we're all really good at hospitality, so it's probably, it's probably speaking from experience. I'm sure a lot of you are better at it than I am. But uh, I, I heard a story from, an analogy from a guy called, no, Rich Robinson from 3DM. And he gave a story about, uh, an analogy, sorry, he gave an analogy about when he was doing maths as a child and, and it didn't really matter with algebra. You know, if you got the right answer in a maths test, you might get two points out of 10, but you get the eight points by showing your workings out and how you've worked yourself out along the way because it's not just about coming up with the right answer, it's about the logic and thinking to get there. And so I found that a really useful analogy for apprenticeship to Jesus generally because what happens after 20 years it has been 20 years, uh, what happens after 20 years of apprenticeship is that you forget where you started and therefore when you meet someone else who's starting out as an apprentice of Jesus, you just assume all these things that you've learned that you forget, uh, which is, you know, um, sociologists call that the curse of knowledge. And so I thought it could be good for us to go back, at least to remember how we got where we got so that we know how to extend ourselves in the practice of hospitality, but also how we can help others learn what we've learned in a more tangible way if it is a skill that we practice. So with that in mind, I just have a few thoughts or ideas and I'll just run through them quickly and then I'll, you know, I'll hear some more of yours. And I'd love at the end of it really for everyone to come away with one practical, tangible idea that you can, I don't know, an idea or something that God might be saying to you individually about how you might extend your own practice of hospitality. Does that sound okay?
Okay, so, uh, so hospitality is about being warm and generous. And I've got a lot under this idea of being warm and generous. And we talked about one of them here. So firstly, clean the house. Uh, I actually, firstly, I'd say, look, these are really simple practices. None of this is rocket science, but I think that's the point of the working out. So clean the house. So we've said, you know, I've heard people say that if a house is really unclean, then it doesn't feel very hospitable. You know, if it's truly messy or dirty, it just doesn't feel very welcoming. But if it's super, super clean uh, to the point where you feel like if you drop wine on the floor or if you, you know, touch something out of place that it could be damaging, then that's not very welcoming either. So you want to be clean, but not too clean. Obviously warm, yeah, not sterile. That's probably a better term, you're right. Not, you know, it needs to be warm. Obviously it's not fun to be in a house where you actually feel half cold or a lot cold. So think about lighting and background music. So is the house welcoming? Does it feel welcoming? We found that with music, you know, a little bit of background music is useful when you have four people. If you have 15 people, then it's a bit distracting. So it's just having a bit of an awareness of the environment of the room. We light candles. For us, it represents the Holy Spirit, but it's also this kind of atmosphere we, which we like. Uh, one for me is know the names of people who are coming. Um, I know that sounds bad, but honestly, sometimes I won't know the kids' names and then I'll realize, oh, I really should actually know the names of the people who are in my house. And I'm not great with names, so I write them down now because it's part of being hospitable. Um, welcome people at the door. That's another one I'm really bad at. I'm so task-focused that you know when people come, I find it really hard to stop what I'm doing and actually welcome people. Apparently humans like that, so um, <laughs> I've, you know, give them a hug, give them a kiss, if that's appropriate, not on the lips, don't be too intimate, especially if you don't know their names. Um, so, all but, the kids. All the kids. <laughs> but you know, you get the point. But, the moment, I mean, I know I'm being, I'm being, being tongue in cheek, but the, the first moment is actually really important in any relationship, in any event, and so the welcome is important. Uh, and the way you p welcome people actually matters. That's why, that's why architects often design the front of the house with a welcome space. You know, there's, there's something about the way you enter which makes a difference. Uh, offer tea, coffee, you know, wine, cheese, whatever. Uh, if, would you like something can be really helpful. Uh, and we found that small things can make a big difference. We, we went to someone's house once and we stayed at their house and when we went to the just the, the bed, which was just a futon mattress on the floor, but they had two chocolates on the pillow. And it was just really, really nice. Like it made us feel really special. It felt like a hotel rather than just a futon mattress. And so now we have a box of chocolates and we just put two chocolates out when we have guests and we put them on the pillow. And it's just those small little things which I think can make people feel like they're welcome, um, which are more about habits, but the small things make a difference. Uh, another one, make a person feel at ease with conversation. Not everyone's good at small talk, but I think if there's awkward silence, that can actually be particularly weird at the beginning of like a conversation or when people come into your house. And I, I had to really learn this. So this is definitely me doing my workings out. Uh, I've had to learn small talk because I've never found it very easy. So some of the things I've been taught um, I was taught by Darren and Corey, who many of you know, that who were great at conversations and creating meaning, that you know, whenever they were having people over or when they were going to other people's houses, they would reflect on, well, you know, what did they talk about last time? Or do they have kids? 
Did they go to a school? What are their hobbies? And they would think about one or two questions that the other person would be interested so that the other person would talk about themselves. And, and all you need is one or two questions and then you're pre-armed to make sure that you can start a conversation. Uh, and so some of, I mean, many of us are just naturally good at this, but I certainly wasn't. And so I found it helpful to, to intentionally think about one or two questions just to kick start the conversation. Um, okay, so be generous with your time and money. <laughs> I, I, cooked, I cooked a meal for a friend, Brian, in Adelaide every fortnight for a few months, oh, more than that, about a year. And uh, it was like a discipling thing. But one day he said, I'm going to bring dessert because you cook for me. It was just a spaghetti bolognese and I used to cook a, a pie from the, that I purchased. It wasn't anything special, but he said, I'm going to bring dessert. And I thought, great, Brian's getting the idea of you know, reciprocity. And, and uh, so I didn't make dessert that day. And he rocked up and he had some homemade, he bought some home brand, like home brand biscuits and some home brand marshmallows. And well, not even the kind of the good marshmallows, you know, where you get the, yeah, yeah the really big, fat, cheap ones. And, uh, and he said, oh, this is what I like for dessert. And you put a marshmallow on top of the two biscuits and, and that was like a marshmallow sandwich. And I'm like, Brian, that's just cheap. Don't do that again. <laughs> 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 like, like, you know. There's like, and it wasn't, it wasn't that, it wasn't that I care about it being cheap because it doesn't have to be expensive, but it was more there was a lack of effort, I think. So there's a sense where we should be generous with what we have. Um, um, all right, so technology, put it away. It's not, you know, it's not great etiquette to have your phone open and to be texting or to be, you know, even the research says put your, if you put your phone on a table and have a conversation with someone, then the perceived quality of the conversation is reduced by the person. Uh, even if the phone is never touched or looked at. That's an interesting research observation so because there's this other thing in the, in the relationship. So I think it's great etiquette to put phones away when you're talking. And walk people to the door and say goodbye, obviously, when you leave. Um, entry and exit are really important. I have some other thoughts, but that's just about being warm and generous. So why don't you just pause and you, you'll have other ideas, but, but do any of those things connect with you or are there other things you do to be warm and generous? Maybe just five minutes, have a quick chat. This group here, we're talking about how, you know, even what I described was very context specific. So it was very middle class. Just true, you know, music in the background and things like that. Um, and, and obviously in you know, some of the places where these guys live, the idea of having music in the background or even having a people for a, a meal would be a little bit strange. Uh, and it does, it does remind me of when we were in, we were in Adelaide, this is our very first house when, um, when we were married. And, there was a family next door who were in a housing department and um, they were really, they were really broken family. And we connected really well with the kids, but we wanted to connect with the mum as well. So uh, her um, partner was in jail, so it was just her and the two kids. And so we thought, oh, let's have a really, like, let's think about them. Cause again, hospitality is about the other, not yourself. And let's have a really simple meal. So we just thought we'd just have spaghetti bolognese, kids like that and we'll eat it. Um, and our house was definitely nothing special at the time, so we thought the house wasn't a barrier. But the big barrier was that we ate around at a table and they'd never ever sat at a, they'd never sat at a table before and eaten. And it was a completely weird experience and it just didn't work. Uh, so next time we had them around, we ordered Domino's and we ate it on the floor and it was great. So again, that's probably similar to what you said. So I suppose that's the key thing about hospitality that it's about the other, it's not about yourself. And, uh, and it's a bit like Paul, especially from a missional point of view, that I try to be all things to all people. So you're trying to you know, not be artificial. We, we weren't pretending to be someone who we weren't either, and yet we're trying to find that balance. Um, yeah, okay, so just a few more thoughts. 
There are more thoughts about the idea that hospitality is both about communion, so communion being where we eat together as brothers and sisters in Christ and we remember the body and blood of Jesus, uh, and also the Great Commission, which is about eating with people who aren't yet apprentices as, a, as an expression of our faith to bring people into relationship with him. And so I've just, there are some things that are different than just hospitality when you look at hospitality from those perspectives. So one is to create a rhythm. I'll be super quick, but uh, rhythms are really important. We've found that if you can create a rhythm, then you can create community. And if you can create community, then you can create depth of relationship. So third place communities always had a rhythm as a community. So we used to meet at uh, Rectango every Friday night, drunk beer, listen to jazz. And we did that for years and years and years. Uh, we met at Noppies, which was you know, a pub in Salamanca. We met there, what time was it? About five o'clock? Anyway, in the afternoon on Sunday, we did it for years and years and years. And so we created this rhythm, this culture of hospitality. For Kai and I, when we first moved to our, our new house, we had a Saturday brunch and every fortnight, sometimes every week, we'd have someone new over and we'd eat brunch together because that worked with little kids and it worked for our kind of middle classness. And so it was a great way to create a rhythm of building relationships. And one of the things I would say is that, um, that one of the key things I've learned in starting a rhythm is to do it intentionally, but not to, but to do it in kind of a bit of a smart way. So what I mean by that is, it, let's say I want to meet with a friend, we get along well, I thought, wouldn't it be good if we had a rhythm of eat, know, having a coffee once a fortnight? And if you do a coffee once a fortnight with someone, you can get to know them really well over time. But it would be weird to say, hey, you know, Mark, do you want to have a coffee once a fortnight and create a rhythm? Like, it's just <laughs> really strange. Uh, so what I would generally do is I'd have this idea in the back of my mind, well, actually a rhythm of like every Tuesday at 12, you know, at lunch could work for me. Why don't I just test it and see if it works? So I'd just say, hey, Mark, do you want to have a coffee or a lunch or something at work? Sure. You know, how about Tuesday, 12 o'clock? So we'll do that. And then I might say, hey, do you want to, do you want to meet up again in a fortnight uh, if, if, it's, if we enjoy it? And, and if it's yes, then we'll do it again. And once you've done that two or three times, then it's easy to say, hey, um, we've met a few times. Do you want to do this every fortnight? And it's just a natural way of, of creating a rhythm. Uh, and conversely, if you realize, actually, I'm not really enjoying this and our conversations are kind of flatlining or I don't feel like, continuing this, well, you've never promised anything in the first place, so there's no commitment either. And I know that's a very simple example, but we've found that all of our rhythms, almost all of our rhythms, if I look at my workings out, I've had the intention of maybe starting a rhythm and I've given it a go, and then I've realized that rhythms just happen once you do something on a regular basis. So I found that a really helpful little principle. And we've just done this for lots and lots of areas of our life, both communally and individually. Okay, the next one about being, this is more about the Great Commission, is that, uh, and we talk about hospitality, even as a community in our missional community, we talk about when we eat together, what's the spiritual temperature like? Because there's, there's relational friendship community uh, and there's meaning, but there's a, then there's a sense of spiritual temperature. So uh, is it a spiritual community? Are you creating spiritual conversations? Is it a place of, of depth and... Um, a miracle in some ways and I suppose that's a question we often ask ourselves and if it's not then we ask the question how might we increase the spiritual temperature of our gatherings and we do that you know simple ways we pray sometimes before we meet and eat with people knowing that you know we expect God's spirit to do something 
Uh, we say thanks, we say grace before a meal, and sometimes that can be more than that, which is a really good way when we're eating with people who aren't apprentices of Jesus to, to be a bit more open. I think, I think Michael or Mary mentioned, you mentioned the idea that someone came to faith simply because you were saying grace when you ate with them. And you know, we found that that practice is actually really, really powerful. Uh, and when we eat out as a family, we still try to say thanks, even when we're in public, to create this sense of actually this is what we do, and this is our culture, and it doesn't matter whether we're in public or we're in private, but our faith is, is out there. Another one is um, to be bold in revealing your cards. And what I mean by that is we can, we can hide what we believe, we can hide who we are when we're with others who don't believe what we believe, and, or we can reveal our cards a bit more openly and obviously and that idea came to me when I was chatting with a mate who had been in a workplace for years and years uh, and then left the workplace and realized that he'd never let anyone know about the depth of his faith yeah and they thought it was weird because they were going off to become a pastor <laughs> I was like oh I didn't even know you had faith you know there's this kind of dichotomy with what they believed and and what they revealed and they weren't being dishonest they just weren't sharing their cards in everyday conversations and um, and then I so I suppose to create a spiritual temperature is to share what you're thinking about what you've done on the weekend what what you're interested in rather than and even if you're not sure if the other person will think it's weird well share it anyway and if they think it's weird it's fine and they'll do the same it's just a relationship I read um, on the weekend from um, 12 Rules of Life by Jordan Peterson he says if you will not reveal yourself to others you cannot reveal yourself to yourself. And he's a psychologist and what he's saying is that by revealing yourself to others, that's the only way you really know what you, are, you believe yourself because you test it with others, you hear other people's reactions. You, you, it's almost like you commit to yourself about what you believe and about who you are when you test it with others. But if you can't do that, then it's almost like you can't reveal yourself to yourself. So I think there's something quite profound in that. Uh, nearly there. So, um, yeah, look, be open about your struggles. I think we found that a great way to increase the spiritual temperature. You know, you can always, how are you? You can always say, I'm fine. But if you're not fine, then if you're honest, then it can be a, a way to create truth telling. And similarly, try to be thankful and joyful as well because gratitude is contagious and that creates a spiritual environment when you're thankful. You know, Kev's great. He always says, best day ever. And, and the other day, um, my daughter you know, was with Nat, Kylie doing something and she said, this is the best day ever. And we're like, great, it's contagious. So there's this sense where gratitude and thankfulness does catch. And that's a spiritual thing. It's about worship. Uh, look, ask to pray when people are struggling. You know, at our big dinners, we have prayed with people. Uh, I'm going for a new job. We just say, can we, can we pray with you? Um, I'm really struggling with my family. Can we pray with you? And that's been a really great way to increase the spiritual temperature, even when people aren't believers. And the last one is obviously share your story, your testimony. Be willing to share the gospel. Share something about what you know of Jesus if the moment presents itself. But all those things are about increasing the spiritual temperature. My next point is about being willing to receive. Being willing to receive. Uh, and I call that reverse hospitality. So Jesus almost always received hospitality. And yet we see that to be like Jesus, we need to give it. Uh, I remember when I was in Swan Hill um, working, I had a friend and they would shout me out to coffees and meals all the time. They were really generous and I really liked them. 
and I enjoyed being friends with them. But then we went to the supermarket and I just wanted to put 10 bucks down to buy their groceries and they absolutely refused to receive from me. And I remember feeling at the time, just didn't feel very nice. That, and, then, and then when they were generous to me, it didn't feel nice because I knew that they wouldn't receive from me. You know? And so I think we can get into this pattern where we're the ones who give. But I think if you can't receive from people, then you haven't really understood the grace of God. Because if we can receive from the God of the universe who dies and gives his whole life and sacrifices everything for our sins, if we can receive from God and we can't receive 10 bucks from a friend, I don't know if we've really understood the grace of God. Does that make sense? Uh, so again, um, don't be entitled. You know, be thankful when people give to you. But um, I think we need to reflect on do we eat at other people's houses? Do we let them give to us? Do we receive from others? Uh, and, and I suppose make room. That's probably one thing I'd say. Make room to be blessed, which, which is probably where a lot of us who are middle class and pretty independent fall down. Practically, if, you know, I, I find this really hard, but if we're having a hard week, I will sometimes text people or say, I'm really struggling. Can you pray for me? You know, when we've been sick, we've, we've asked for help and, and I could get by without the help, but the help's really helpful. <laughs> but unless I ask or, or make space to be blessed, then, you know what I mean, it's hard to be blessed. Uh, and, and obviously don't always have people to your house go to other people's houses and, and allow them to bless you. Um, and look, the last thing is do this together. Hospitality is a communal affair where possible. Create rhythms community together okay they're my notes so they're a whole heap of practical ideas so why don't you just reflect maybe in silence we'll just finish off because i'd just reflect is there anything out of everything we've talked about that stands out to you maybe one one idea that stands out and one practical thing that you could take away to be better at practicing hospitality like paul says and I'd love, if possible, I'd love to hear from everyone. What's one thing, one idea that you can take away and what's one thing you'll do? Just have some silence and um, we'll go from there.